the Christmas season, and this week and next, I'd like to take the opportunity to bring to you a, a couple of messages that are intended to complement each other, two parts to one glorious story. And this morning we consider the first of those messages, the humiliation of the Christmas story. Next week we'll be looking at the glory of the Christmas story. But this morning we begin by looking at the humiliation of the story of Christmas as told to us in the scriptures. So turn with me please to Luke, the second chapter, where this morning I'd like to read for you the first 20 verses, the well-known Christmas story. Luke chapter 2 at the first verse, hear now God's word. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went up to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. I'm going to do something which I do not um, like to do often when I'm preaching to you. I'd like to read from another book now, not at all the Word of God, but something which I think will be illuminating as we consider the text that we've had before us and the theme of the humiliation of the Christmas story. I'd like to read a little essay that was once written by C.S. Lewis. It's entitled... Xmas and Christmas, a lost chapter from Herodotus. And in order for you to understand the um, humor and the, and the scholarship that lies behind this little essay, you need to know that Herodotus is credited as being the first historian. 
He was a Greek. He wrote about the history of many cultures. And the style in which Herodotus wrote was one of um, uh, a travelogue, a kind of wonder as a person goes to another area of the world and finds the following customs and the following kind of people. Imagine, I, this is what Lewis is saying to us, imagine what it would be like if someone in the style of Herodotus were to come to us at this season of the year and have to describe our culture. And it's entitled Xmas and Christmas. One thing you will not be able to enjoy as I will as I read is that um, Lewis does exactly what a person who is traveling to our country would do when he writes this up. He speaks of Xmas and he spells it E-X-M-A-S because that's what he hears, Xmas. And, of course, he spells Christmas, C-H-R-I-S-S-M-A-S. This is Christmas. And so you don't see the Christ mass part of it and all that. It's just the kind of impression you would get visually and verbally if you came to our country. All right. And he begins. And, of course, C.S. Lewis, one more note of introduction, writes from England. Okay, he's writing in the, in, from the standpoint of the British Isles. And so the opening paragraph is describing England. And if you're not aware of that, you might be a little lost. A lost chapter from Herodotus. And beyond this, there lies in the ocean, turned towards the west and north, the island of Niatribe, which Hectaeus indeed declares to be the same size and shape as Sicily. But it is larger, though in calling it triangular, a man would not miss the mark. It is densely inhabited by men who wear clothes not very different from the other barbarians who occupy the northern, western parts of Europe, though they do not agree with them in language. These islanders, surpassing all the men of whom we know in patience and endurance, use the following customs. In the middle of winter, when frogs and rains most abound, they have a great festival which they call Xmas, and for fifty days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. But the pictures represent birds sitting on branches, or trees with a dark green prickly leaf, or else men in such garments as the Nyat Herbians believed that their ancestors wore 200 years ago, riding in coaches such as their ancestors used, or houses with snow on their roofs. And the Nyatyrians were unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so that there is great labor and weariness. But having bought as many as they supposed to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any to whom they also have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that their labor at least is over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breast and wail and utter curses against the sender. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And let this account suffice about Xmas cards. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. 
and they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers, meaning the merchants, for the sellers, understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery and whatever, being useless and ridiculous. They have been unable to sell throughout the year. They now sell as an Xmas gift. And though the Nyaterbians profess themselves to lack sufficient necessary things, such as metal, leather, wood, and paper, yet an incredible quantity of these things is wasted every year, being made into gifts. But during these 50 days, the oldest, poorest, and most miserable of the citizens put on false beards and red robes and walk about the marketplace, being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos, that is the god of time uh, in Greek mythology, being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos, and the sellers of gifts, no less than the purchasers, become pale and weary because of the crowds and the fog, so that any man who came into a Nyatribian city at this season would think some great public calamity had fallen on Nyaturb. These 50 days of preparation is called in their barbarian speech the Xmas Rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted with the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening they eat five times as much supper as on other days, and crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas they are very grave, being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking, and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on the wine. For wine is so dear among the Nyaterbians that a man must swallow the worth of a talent before he is well intoxicated. Such, then, are their customs about the Xmas. But the few among the Nyaterbians have also a festival separate and to themselves called Christmas, which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas doing the opposite to the majority of the Nyaterbians rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. Uh, parenthetically, the reason of these images is given in a certain sacred story which I know but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of these temples and asked him why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas, for it appeared to me inconvenient. But the priest replied, It is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas. But would that Zeus would put it into the minds of the Nyaterbians to keep Xmas at some other time, or not to keep it at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds even of the few, from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas, but in Xmas there is no merriment left. And when I asked him why they endured the rush, he replied, It is, O stranger, a racket, using, as I suppose, the words of some oracle, and speaking unintelligibly to me, for a racket is an instrument which the barbarians use in a game called tennis. But what Hecteus says, that Xmas and Christmas are the same, is not credible. So this is, Herodotus had this style. He would say, some other writer has told you this, but I have not found it to be true. So he says, what Hecteus says, that Xmas and Christmas are the same, is not credible. For first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do 
with the sacred story which the priests tell about Christmas. And secondly, the most part of the Nyaturbians, not believing the religion of the few, nevertheless send the gifts and cards and participate in the rush and drink wearing paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a God they do not believe in. And now enough about Nyaturb. This was published one Christmas season in England. You can imagine, well, of course, the uneducated in England wouldn't have understood it anyway. But those who had any reason to um, understand what Lewis was getting at would be asking the question, which I want to ask you this morning, why do those who have no faith in the deity and the saving worth of Jesus Christ make merry at this time of year called Christmas, or as it's popular, the holiday season? Why is it that those who do not believe the Christmas story continue to celebrate the holidays, the holy days? Why do they even call it Christmas? Now, Lewis, of course, tongue-in-cheek, says, well, of course, Xmas and Christmas must be different because men would never make merry on a day in celebration of a God they don't believe in, or would they? News stories and television specials at this time of year tend to gravitate toward little editorial or sermonic paragraphs on the true meaning of Christmas. I'm going to tell you something. I'm getting sick of hearing about the true meaning of Christmas. Last night, we happened to have on, just for noise, uh, some television special, and I had already uh, gathered my thoughts for today's message, and lo and behold, toward the end of it, we have some television star coming forth and telling us about the true meaning of Christmas. You see, just when you might think a closet commitment to the divine Son of God, our Savior, is about to be revealed because this is the true meaning of Christmas, you find that unbelievers have, as a matter of fact, their own unbelieving perception of the true meaning of Christmas. And so we have created for us the ironic situation that people are insisting on the true meaning of Christmas at just the point that they don't know the truth. The true meaning of Christmas. What is the true meaning of Christmas for those whom I will now call humanist? Not Christ those who worship the human spirit, those who say that man is the measure of all things, those who say that human value is the highest value, that human authority is the highest authority, those who put man at the center of their worldview instead of God. What is the meaning of Christmas, or shall we call it Xmas after the Lewis essay? What is the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas for a humanist. Well, I think that the true meaning of Christmas for a humanist is ironically enough found in the Bible. In a verse which is poorly translated in the King James Version at Luke chapter 2, verse 14. In our scripture reading this morning, you will notice in the translation I use, which is the New International Version, Luke 2:14, the song of the angels is translated, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. In the King James Version, however, you will know the, the words, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth and goodwill to men. And the reason for that um, mistranslation has a little bit to do with ancient 
manuscripts and a whole lot to do with the translation of an awkward Greek expression, which is universally understood by Greek scholars to mean um, uh, goodwill to those who have been favored, uh, parenthetically, by God. Those on whom his favor rests, as my translation puts it. But let's go back to the King James, which of course has informed our English language and customs for so many years. Men have heard repeatedly from childhood and on that the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill to men. Now there, I think, formally speaking, in empty verbal symbols, is the meaning, the true meaning of Christmas for the humanist. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And having those words in hand, somewhat like empty bottles perhaps, the humanist world now proceeds to fill those bottles, those words, with their own imaginations, their own philosophies, their own perspectives on what peace is and what goodwill is. And usually, this comes down to meaning, although the variations are interesting, but usually it comes down to meaning. The true meaning of Christmas is this, no war on the international scene and kindness to our fellow men, especially those in need. Am I right? Isn't that the true meaning of Christmas as you read about it in the paper, hear about it on newscasts, and of course see it in Christmas specials? Peace on earth, meaning no warfare, all the nations you see are going to lay down their weapons, and goodwill to men, meaning we have a neighborly warmth and, and nice feeling, a kindness toward one another. That's the true meaning of the humanist Christmas. Now, having established that or introduced that thought, what I want to ask you is, but how do the details about the birth of Christ fit into the true meaning of the humanist Christmas? Why is it that making this, having made this the meaning of Christmas for them, humanists continue to tell the story of a baby born in Bethlehem? It surprises me in a way which perhaps um, didn't surprise Lewis that people don't uh, hesitate to go and tell the Bethlehem story. Even though they have no intention of telling the meaning of Christmas from a theistic and Christian standpoint. That is to say, having made the meaning of Christmas, let's be peaceful and kind toward one another, we tell some apparently irrelevant story about a mother having a baby. Now why? Where Lewis thought that was, you know, perhaps mind-boggling, I don't. I don't mean to say that I have some kind of insider intelligence Lewis lacked by any means. But I do think that if you stop and reflect on it, you can see very easily why the story about the baby Jesus in the manger fits right into the humanist true meaning of Christmas. It might seem we could have the true meaning of Christmas without Christ or his birth story at all, but actually for historical and psychological cultural reasons that I won't explore now, the humanist approach to Christmas continues to remember and reflect upon the details of the birth of Jesus, and it does so primarily for illustrative purposes. It does so because here's a great illustration of the need for that message. The reason we keep telling this story over and over again, even though we have no belief in the deity of this person, or the saving message that is about him, 
We continue to tell the details because this shows how unkind men can be and what a lack of peace the world now has. You see, for illustrative purposes, the story about Jesus and his birth continues to tell the humanist meaning of Christmas. The biblical account of the birth of Jesus provides a message, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, against the backdrop, don't you see, against the backdrop of events which illustrate the very opposite, which illustrate anything but peaceful conditions and neighborly kindness. Humanists continue to tell this story because it shows us how the true meaning of Christmas, which of course is the false meaning of Christmas, but what they call the true meaning of Christmas is sorely needed in our world. It is for humanists the very sorry conditions under which Jesus was born that naturally leads into the call for a better world that naturally leads to a call for peace and goodwill toward men. And thus, this morning I want us to look at the humiliation of the Christmas story. And there are plenty of humiliating details to consider. First, this morning, I want you to look at the oppressive political circumstances that are detailed for us in this story. We know, of course, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But now let's start adding to this. Let's put some, some detail, some substance to the story. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? After all, his parents lived in Nazareth. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Joseph, his presumed father, was forced to go to Bethlehem by a political decree. I want you to think about that. Think about oppression here. Some politician told Joseph that he had to get up and go to Bethlehem. Joseph didn't do that just because he thought he'd go home for a visit. He didn't do that because it was time for a vacation. He didn't do that because he was out on a business call. Joseph went to Bethlehem because he was forced to go to Bethlehem. He was compelled by political decree to do it. Now, how many of us like to be told what to do by earthly dictators? None of us do. We enjoy our freedom. And so don't you see how we need peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Poor Joseph is forced out of his home to go away. But you know, it's more insulting than that. The oppressive political circumstances aren't simply that Joseph went because somebody told him he had to, but he went because the decree was a decree of taxation. How many of us like to pay our taxes? Not any of us. Taxation is one of the, of course, most uh, hated forms or instruments of political rule. We don't like to pay our taxes. And how would you like it if you were Joseph? Not only do you have to get up and go somewhere you don't want to go necessarily, but the reason you have to go is so that you can register, be enrolled, to be taxed. You see how oppressive the political situation was in that day and how much there was a need for peace on earth and goodwill toward men? But you know, there's a third step in the humiliation of this oppressive political situation. And the third step is not just that a politician told Joseph to go do something, not just that he told him to do it for the sake of taxes, but it was a foreign government that told him. It was bad enough course, that any government would dictate his actions. But you see, it's an emperor 
way across the sea in Rome, who decides he wants to tax the Roman world, that forces Herod and Quirinius and the other local leaders to bring people to their family homes to be enrolled for the taxation. Joseph has to suffer the indignity of going to Bethlehem against his wishes for the sake of paying taxes to a foreign overlord. Now do you see the true meaning of Christmas? We need peace on earth. We need goodwill toward men, not oppressive political circumstances. But if you consider that, consider secondly as well the embarrassing social setting. Not only were there oppressive political circumstances, there was a very embarrassing social setting here. Because you'll notice that Mary went with Joseph to Bethlehem. Why would a woman nine months pregnant go on a trip like this? Sometimes we know a story so well that we don't know it very well at all. Many of you have been told the Christmas story over and over and over again, but have you ever thought about the historical realities, the details? Why did Mary go with Joseph? He could have gone and signed up the family in Bethlehem. And I want to suggest to you, though I admit it is somewhat reading between the lines, but not much. I want to suggest to you that Mary went with him because Joseph did not want her to suffer the indignity of gossip. After all, Joseph had married her despite the fact that she was pregnant before the marriage, before the wedding. Joseph was that kind of fellow. There aren't a lot of them in this this world, as you know. Most uh, fiancés would be humiliated by this, and they would be infuriated by it, and they would have left her. But Joseph, for reasons which, of course, the Bible explains to us, but from the standpoint of those who have not heard what the angels said, Joseph is just some kind of soft-hearted guy who doesn't want to see Mary left out there by herself with this baby. And so he goes through with the wedding. I mean, how credible would it be to you? How credible would it be to you if one of your neighbors, let's say a 19-year-old, apparently nice young woman, were pregnant and not married? And then the explanation comes to you, kind of whispered, it's a miracle. She hasn't had relations with anybody. And you probably roll your eyes and say, uh-huh, that's right. And Joseph's going to be a nice enough guy and kind of relieve a little bit of the social embarrassment. He's going to marry her anyway. Uh-huh. Well, if it began that way, can you imagine what it would have been like if he had been away from home and she gave birth? What people would be saying? What she'd have to go through? You see how unkind we can be? See, what you have here is a very common story of a woman pregnant out of wedlock. And it's a story of kindness and the need for peace among people. You see how the humanist true meaning of Christmas can be illustrated here? These embarrassing social there is an oppressive political circumstance, an embarrassing social setting. Then thirdly, consider the physical hardship that this story tells us. Terrible physical hardship. You know, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was 90 miles. 90, to make it clear to you, walking miles. Not 90 miles by train. 
not 90 miles on a Greyhound bus, not 90 miles on a nice quick flight from LAX, 90 walking miles for a pregnant woman. About a three-day trip at a pretty good clip, by the way. 30 miles a day. It's a nice, you know, portion of ground to cover. And Mary had to do that while she was pregnant. So the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is a matter of physical hardship. And Mary was so far along in her pregnancy that upon arriving in Bethlehem, the Bible says she went into labor and had her child. And look at how she had her child. Look at the humiliation of this. Deprived of the normal comforts at such a time. She wasn't at home. She didn't have help from her family. She didn't even have ready availability of supplies. And she had to have a baby. And she was lonely. The Bible tells us she herself wrapped the baby in swaddling cloths. Very unusual. In that day and age, a woman would have some kind of attendant, a midwife or a sister or a mother, somebody who would help her, and the attendant would wrap the baby. But Mary not only has to take care of her own physical condition at the time of the birth, but she now has to take care of the child and wrap the child and tend to it as well immediately. But, of course, the most well-known detail of the whole story is yet to be mentioned if we're going to mention physical hardship, and that's, as Luke and Matthew both tell us, there was no room made for her at the inn of Bethlehem. No room at the inn. Boy, if ever there was a, an illustration of how unkind we can be, it's to not give up your room, your own bed, for a pregnant woman who is in labor, of all things. The inn was crowded, probably crowded because so many people had come for the enrollment like Joseph, and there was no room there. And the innkeeper, either unwilling to disturb his guests or having disturbed them and getting no response, cannot provide a room for Joseph and Mary. And so you notice the insensitivity of people in this world, don't you? Can you believe the cruelty of somebody who would not let a pregnant woman have his room or her room? And there's no room in human society for Jesus. And so Joseph turns to the habitation of animals, to a cave or to a stable, a rough stable of some sort. And the baby Jesus, when he's born, doesn't have a crib. He must be laid in a feed trough, in a manger. And so now, you see how this illustrates the need for peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Of course I can understand why the humanists tell this story. It shows us what a bad lot of people we are. It shows us how insensitive and unkind we can be. It shows us our need to love one another and to care for those who are in greater need than we ourselves. Of course, there's also a story about very lowly people here. Who is it that comes to give praise because Jesus is born? It's shepherds. You know, and that has a nice sounding ring to those of us who know this story and have told it from childhood. But in that day and age, it didn't. Shepherds came to him. Shepherds represented the poor among the people. Shepherds represented the smelly among the people. I mean, that's not just a contemporary phenomenon. That sort of thing is, is, is classic in literature about the way people ridicule the smell of shepherds. And shepherds were so despised in Palestine that they were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. 
I mean, these are the people who are just, you know, overwhelmed by the coming of Jesus. People who are smelly and poor and despised. The outcast of society, in a sense. And so we see our need for goodwill toward men and peace on earth. But there's one more part of the story that isn't in the Luke passage that we read, but we do read about it in Matthew's Gospel as he gives the account of Jesus' birth, and that's the persecution and danger of this day. For when Herod the Great heard that a king had been born, he suspected a coming revolution. And like a madman, then he sought to kill the child, and in order to make sure that the child would be killed, he slaughtered all infants, all infant males, up to two years old in Bethlehem. Talk about political oppression. Talk about madmen. Talk about persecution. Matthew describes this as the wailing of Rachel for her children at Ramah. Terrible story. Mary and Joseph are forced to flee to Egypt and probably had to finance the trip to Egypt with the original gifts brought by the Magi. And so here we have the true meaning of Christmas illustrated or the need for the true meaning of Christmas, so very well illustrated. The need for peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I don't disagree that these are bad circumstances, but I want to tell you this morning before we close, others have had similar bad circumstances. Others have had to contend with political oppression, with embarrassing social settings, physical hardship, with lowly people to be their friends, and with persecution and danger. Others have had to contend with it. And pardon me, I do not mean to sound at all disrespectful, but I want to tell you that, in fact, some people have had it far worse. We pretend, we make a myth out of the story if we think this is as bad as anybody's ever seen it. How would you like to have given birth as a woman on one of the trains to Auschwitz? I know Mary had it bad, but believe me, people have had it worse. And talk about persecution, yes, Herod killed so many infants up to two years of age. Do I have to remind you of some of the details just of the 20th century about the slaughter of infants, the slaughter of races of people, the indignity people have had to suffer in concentration camps, the political oppression under which they live? Now, I'm telling you, if the humanist is looking for an illustration of the need for the humanist idea of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, the only reason to tell us the details of the Christmas story is just because it's convenient, just because it's been told so often, just because we can expect people to identify with it, because it doesn't show us by any means the worst of political oppressions, the worst of physical hardships, the worst of social embarrassments that people have, to gone, have gone through. It doesn't show us the greatest lack of peace on earth or the greatest need for goodwill toward men. Well, then what is the humiliation of the Christmas story? Because I believe it is a humiliating story. The humiliation of the Christmas story is better told to us, I think, in the words of our catechism which, as an aside, I want to remind you, all of you should be getting to know much better. It's a shame that we don't know our catechism because there's a lot of very good theology in it. And question 47 of our Westminster Larger Catechism says, How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? 
Here's the humiliation of Christ in the Christmas story. And the answer is Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. Yes, he was abased in the circumstances of his birth, but the humiliation of the Christmas story is that the one who was the Son of God from all eternity was pleased to become the Son of Man. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see the humiliation here of Jesus? How he had all the wealth of deity, all the splendor and the glory of the Godhead, how he had all the privileges and the comforts of heaven, how he sovereignly ruled over heaven and earth, how he created all things, how he knew the glory of the tulip and the rose and all those things, how he directed every minute detail of history from his throne on high, how he received eternally the antiphonal song of the angels of heaven, and how in the midst of all that, in the midst of that divine wealth, he became poor, utterly poor, that we might become rich through his poverty. That's the humiliation of Christmas. And not only did he give up his divine privilege and glory in heaven, Romans 8, 3 tells us, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. You would think if God were to come into this world, if God were to give up his privileges of the throne and the glory of the angels and the direction of creation to come in this world, he would come with a glorious body. He would come with resplendent majesty. He would come in such a way that everyone would have to respect his place. But Paul says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man. He took on a human body. I don't know if you have any conception. I don't know if we can have any genuine conception and appreciation of what that must mean for God to take on a human body. I was thinking for a while as I was preparing for this message this morning that it might be likened to what it would be for us to have to take on the form of a cockroach. A despicable cockroach that accomplishes nothing good as far as I know in this world. They're parasites. They're ugly. And Jesus took on the form of a human being. But you know, as I thought about it, that's still far too flattering to think that we were to become a cockroach because of course, cockroach is just part of our order of creation anyway. A cockroach may not be a very pleasant thing, but the difference between the cockroach and us is in one sense a difference of degree. Where the difference between God and man is one of categorical difference. And Jesus took on our form and our sinful form. A form that is subject to having colds and getting hungry and being tired and being bound and beaten and dying. 
That's the humiliation of Christmas. Not that he was born in a stable, but that it was God who was born. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, puts it very well, it seems to me. Well-known incarnational hymn, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see how Paul begins? He says, this one that I'm talking about, he didn't have to grasp after deity. He was by very nature God. He didn't need to come climbing up some kind of a, a chain of being or strive through some Mormon theology to finally get you know, to the position of a God. He was God from all eternity. No one could take that away from him. And I want to remind you, and especially the children here today, do not think that when we talk about God becoming man, we mean that he stopped being God and became something different than God. We mean God added to himself human nature so that now he is God and man, the God-man. God did not become man by ceasing to be God. He became man by taking on the form of a servant. And Paul says, this one who was in very nature God, who did not have to grasp after equality with God, made himself nothing. The Hebrew expression, which I think is taken from Isaiah 53, is to pour himself out. He just poured himself out. He gave himself over completely to the task of redemption, so that he took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearances of a man, humbled himself even further to dying. And if that isn't enough, dying the death of a common criminal. That's why Paul, when he talks about humility, when he wants to get the point across that we should be humble toward one another, says, have this mind in yourselves that was in Jesus Christ, who, being the very form of God, went through that. You see the humility, the humiliation of the Christmas story, that God became man. In John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus was conscious of the great difference, the great distance between his present estate and that which he had before. And he prayed to God that he would be glorified again now, and he'd receive again that glory that he enjoyed from all eternity with the Father. Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, sent forth from his position of glory, sent forth from his comforts, sent forth from his privileges, sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. The problem with the humanist true meaning of Christmas is that it's not true enough. Yes, the Christmas story is one of humiliation, but humanists don't know humiliation because they don't believe in a God who condescends to become man. 
the humiliation of the Christmas story is not the indignity of the circumstances, but rather the incarnation to which God had to stoop. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are quieted before you as we stand back in hushed amazement that the creator of heaven and earth, the all-glorious, majestic, sovereign God, should stoop to the point of taking on our form, should humiliate himself and become a man in abject circumstances. Lord, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. He went through things which he did not need to go through. He went through things which no one should have to suffer. He went through things which no necessity could be placed upon God to go through. And yet he went through them for us. This morning we wish nothing more but to have that attitude in ourselves which we have seen displayed in our Savior Jesus Christ. That we would be willing to humble ourselves, especially before you, to bow before you and to thank you that you once bowed to us by sending a Savior in the form of man. Lord, we thank you this morning for your humiliation. In Jesus' name, amen.